all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Mola. <laughs> I'm Rachel. I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. So, I am going to start speaking slower in the beginning <laughs> when telling people how to follow us and everything because I realize it's assuming that people understand what I'm saying. And if you're a new listener, like, it'd be really hard. <laughs> to follow and it's easy for people to um think that our email is like all bad things podcast or all bad things or whatever so i just want to make it clear so i'm that's why i'm stopping doing the (laughs) the quick delivery for clarity yes i I agree okay so you can follow us on instagram twitter facebook tiktok and twitch at all bad things pod you can email us all bad things pod at gmail.com We've got a subreddit, a Facebook discussion group, and a Discord. So you can do all that stuff. Do all of those things. There we go. See, it still works. Yeah. <laughs> um, what you drinking tonight? I am having round two <laughs> or three of a national local beer. Mm-hmm. And I am moving on to the lemon lime Gatorade. There you go. Electrolytes. <laughs> yes. It'll make sense in a couple weeks when you guys hear... Uh, the episode two after this one. Yes. <laughs> it, we are on a recording marathon this weekend. All right. So I have an email okay. to read. So this is what made me think about, okay, I need to slow down on my opening thing because this person tried to first email us all bad things podcast at gmail.com, uh. which would be a very logical thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then it bounced back and they had to figure it out. So I'm like, that it is really mean to just like, blah, 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 and expect people to understand it. So there we go. Well, it's not mean. It was, we just didn't realize. It's goofy yeah. and, and not unhelpful. <laughs> so this is <coughs> um, an email um, from Jen or Jennifer. Uh, and the topic is review from a Spotify user to pair with the five star rating. Okay. It's very nice. <laughs> So this is Jennifer's review. One of my favorite things about podcasts is the conversational tone amongst the hosts that hosts that make me feel as if I'm hanging out with friends, having really interesting conversations. While I certainly enjoy scripted podcasts, some of them can be so polished and shiny that they seem devoid of all real emotion and do not engage me no matter how interesting the topic is. All Bad Things is an amateur hobby, as the hosts themselves are quick to point out, but it is well-researched by a married couple who have good chemistry and really make me wish that I could have a drink and smoke a joint with them. <laughs> well, we have lively conversations about tragedies... I, 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 can, I can make that happen. <laughs> tragedies and disasters with many derailments and sidebars rather than being lectured at by some robotic stranger who does not feel anything like a friend. Spot, and then Jennifer said, Spotify is a hateful app that does not allow us to leave actual reviews. Feel free to share this publicly if you are so inclined. Oh, very nice. P.S. I also greatly appreciate that they cite their sources and give tons of credit and gratitude to their listeners who send in scripts for them to use on the pod. Oh, Thank you, Jennifer. Yes, very so nice. nice. Very, very nice. We don't read reviews anymore. 
<laughs> yeah, it's been a while. We made it a thing yeah. for just a little bit. Yeah, it, it got degrading. Yeah. <laughs> and discouraging. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I really never... I was I am at the point in my life, and certainly was then, where I, I'm like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but you were getting most of the criticism, not me. Yeah. So, so I could see. So if you have a review you would like to share with us, you are free to email it. Feel free to email it, and then we will read it. Um, I guess it could be a bad review, too. It's just... Sure. We're going to email you back saying why that's a really mean thing to do. <laughs> so just fair warning. All right. So last week I said that this was going to be a two-parter. This Marielle Boatlift turns out. <laughs> turns out you were wrong. Turns out three. <laughs> I think I haven't even finished the third the third script yet. Maybe it'll be a four-parter. No, we've no, uh, we've do done that. four-parters before. <coughs> we we've, have. We've done but... some three-parters as well. Yes. Yes. We've never done a five-parter. I don't think so. I, I think, think four, four is the. Four. And we've done that a couple of times. Chernobyl was yep. four. Was Grenville Eight. four? Or was that three? I think three? so. That might have been three. AIDS was four. Yes, AIDS was four. That's right. <laughs> it's just a weird way to say yes. it. Was AIDS four? AIDS was four. Yeah, it was four. <laughs> yeah. And maybe, maybe something else? I have a feeling maybe. we've done it more than twice, but... Yeah. Anyway, we've done it at least twice. That I can four remember. is a lot. I remember when it's we did lot. the four-parter for Chernobyl, I was like, wow, four is... A lot. Well, that's do. why in all the rest of the nuclear accidents we did, we didn't bother to go into the science because we we're like, if you want to learn about right, the science. Go back. <laughs> go back to the Chernobyl episodes. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. It's very sciencey. And we very don't feel, sciencey. We don't feel like explaining it again. Yes. Very um, non nuclear physicists attempt to explain nuclear physics. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, this, this topic is just, I just did not realize how much what i feel how much backstory was necessary and how interesting the backstory is yeah this is like i would almost want to do like a phd to learn about this this is this is fascinating stuff well, i mean it's, it's one of those instances that in american history where the the after effects of it are, are still going on to, oh yes to, and will to this day and will forever literally reshaped what yeah. america looks like yes very Absolutely. much so. so socially everything all right so thanks cuba <laughs> thanks castro, thanks, thanks, castro. <laughs> so uh last week's episode part one was los revoluciones the revolutionaries this is los inmigrantes the immigrants okay so, in 1980, the lives of approximately 125,000 Cuban people, not to mention their friends, family, the entirety of South Florida, let alone the United States at large, were permanently altered when an ill-conceived sudden mass migration was allowed with little regard to those actually immigrating. Sources for this week are Barry University, Duke University, Encyclopedia.com, NPR, PedroPen.org, which we'll get into, the Smithsonian Institution, the U.S. Naval Institute, and Wikipedia. All right, so go back and listen to the first episode if you haven't yet. Gives lots of context for this. But very briefly, we learned last episode about the history of revolutions in Cuba and the pivotal role that Fidel Castro played in the revolution of 1959, eventually installing himself as president. That'll be during this era here. That we're talking about. We also talked about how a bunch of people were starting to get very concerned about what life might look like under a socialist slash communist regime. No. 
especially those who were in the upper and middle classes. And this set off the first wave of immigration after the revolution, primary to, primarily to the United States and specifically Miami or South Florida. But it was hardly the first wave of immigration to the United States from Cuba. So when we talked last yeah, week... Yeah, I'm sure it was. Oh, yeah, this is, <laughs> yeah. This is a long Those, time. I mean, that island Money. has been close to the mainland forever. Yeah. So well, it's close to the well. Yeah, it is close to mainland. To, yeah. be, to be honest, it's it's very close to the Keys, mm-hmm. ninety miles. Between. So there's probably been trade throughout that region for centuries. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing. Yes, trade and migration, mm-hmm. right? So uh, when we talked last week about the early Spanish colony days in Cuba in the 16th century, that's essentially the first wave of real migration from to Florida from Cuba. So in 1565, St. Augustine, Florida, was settled by Spanish colonizer Admiral Pedro Menendez de Aviles. Sorry, it's often called the oldest city in the United States, St. Augustine. Mm -hmm. That's like its claim to fame, right? What it really technically is is the oldest continually continuously inhabited European established settlement in what is now the contiguous United States. It's a few qualifiers. It's, in that's there. very long. Like like first yeah. first settlement. Like that's just easy. Basically first <laughs> Yeah. First colonized town, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. That's just much much better. Yeah. Even before Plymouth the Rock. I mean Plymouth the Rock was until sixteen hundreds. Yeah. Sixteen twenty sixteen. Um Uh, So once established, hundreds of Spanish-Cuban people from Cuba immigrated to Florida and settled in St. Augustine. A little down the road, in the late 18th century, another wave of Cuban immigrants, this time significantly larger, settled in Louisiana and Texas, while both were occupied by the Spanish. Sure. So when relationship when the relations between Cuba and Spain deteriorated as the push for independence began in earnest... Poor Ernest, for my grandpa. In the latter half of the 19th century, even more people emigrated to the the States as an alternative way to escape Spanish colonial power. And a big destination for those leaving Cuba was Key West. For a very obvious reason, it was geographically close. 90 miles, right? The very bold and brave tried and sometimes succeeded to arrive Via raft or small boat. Which is fucking insane. I mean, just, uh, no. It takes some desperation Co- or guts or both. Cajones. Co- cojones. <laughs> There's no fucking way. I'm going on the ocean well, in anything but like a fucking, you know. Yes, but think about this. This is the 19th century. Everything is dangerous. That like, is true. Living is dangerous. But even back it's then, I'd be, like, I'd be like, I'm going to take the one with the sails. Like, I'm going to wait for <laughs> well, that. Some more, I'm going to wait know. for that boat. When, when that know. boat arrives, I'll get on it. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the people who arrived in the States in this wave of immigration were skilled tobacco workers. Sure. As a result, the manufacturing of tobacco snuff, in other words, the shit you inhale, Became the cornerstone of the key. I don't know why I did that. Is I don't know why they, you did that either. Is that how they inhale on on their on their finger? That was... Is that how you inhale? You have obviously never done cocaine. Of course not. <laughs> why the fuck would I do that? No, fuck I'm with just, my body no, like that? I'm just saying. Like, like I, can, I can tell by your. 
that you've never shoved something up your nose, like other than I've a Q-tip. I've never done heart. I, I know. I have not shoved a Q-tip. Why I'm would just, you I'm shove k- a Q-tip I'm, under? I'm, I'm kidding. Oh my goodness. No, I have never done hard drugs and even, quote, soft drugs very minorly, very few times and it's all in my past. So I, I'm not even fucking drinking at this point. No, so yeah. straight edge, sir. <laughs> So clearly, yes, I, I know you don't you don't do cocaine like that. I don't know. What you were doing was like rubbing your nose. So. Yeah, it's basically yeah, like rubbing my nose. Of, yeah. Which is what you do after cocaine, after right? After you sneeze. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, the manufacturing of tobacco snuff became the cornerstone of the Key West economy near the end of the 19th century. A major cigar operation then moved to Tampa during this period, which obviously brought plenty of workers with it. Not so that resulted in a significant Cuban population on the west coast of Florida too, well, around the Tampa area. Yeah, talk about one of the you know tobacco and sugar. Uh huh. Two of the biggest uh, products uh-huh. of a largely agrarian society. Mm-hmm. So yeah, around or at least at this time, around a hundred thousand people continued to leave Cuba for the U.S. throughout the first half of the twentieth century, most during the Depression. Um, Batista, who we talked about, mm-hmm. Fulgencio Batista, a real motherfucker who was in power b- before Castro, um, uh, was also a source of those seeking to leave the island. Uh, plus the, uh, the, the crash of 29 in the depression affected other parts of the world beyond well, the United it, States, it, obviously. it was a worldwide mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it was centralized here. Mm-hmm. This is where it started, but it affected the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Just like the, I mean, all the crashes since then have. Uh, as goes the United States. Goes the world. It goes a lot of the especially, world's economy. Especially economically, even yeah. back mm-hmm. then. In addition to Florida, significant numbers. Oh, so so that was that was why a lot of people were trying to leave the island along with the depression, all that. In addition to Florida, significant numbers of immigrants also settled in New York and New Jersey due, due, due to job opportunities. So there are still, uh, and you can see these migration patterns resulted in strong Cuban American communities mm-hmm. in these areas. Um, by the time Batista was ousted at the very beginning of 1959, the Cuban American population in the States was estimated to be around 50,000 people. Okay. Um, but that number skyrocketed. I was going to say, it did not stay <laughs> Almost there. immediately in a short era that has come to be known as the Golden Exile. Hmm. So I'm very proud of the title of this next section, so I'm going to call it Amber Waves of Immigration. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Golden <laughs> Exile, Amber yeah. Waves yeah. of Immigration. <laughs> you know I love a pun and a wordplay. Yes, I do. All right. Does the audience like it or not? We don't I know. don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, it makes perfect sense that once Batista was ousted, the first people to get the fuck out of Cuba were his associates. Yes. Right? <laughs> because a... They're all standing around looking at each other like, Uh-oh. honor among thieves? Whoever said that? Um, <laughs> let's get out of here. So, because essentially the entire governmental structure overturned. Yeah, just left. If you think about it, that's a whole bunch of people. Maybe not like every government worker, but certainly anybody who, well, I don't know. At that point, they were all like cronies and stuff. Here's what people don't understand and don't really take into account. All of the, uh, yes, of course, the government has its problems, always has, always will. But on a functional basis, Mm -hmm. if you have a functional government, that means things are being taken care of that you don't even consider or even think about. 
Think being, about plumbing. Yep. Think about water. Think it, about... And it is being taken care of by thousands upon thousands of civil servants. Yeah. Who do the unseen, thankless work that Congress seems to think is a problem. By the way, everybody, Congress is trying to pass, which hopefully will not because of the fucking Republicans uh, being dipshits, but... Um, trying to institute the so-called Show Up Act to restrict telework for federal employees and cost the taxpayers literal millions of dollars (laughs) to upkeep (laughs) facilities that were planned to be closed. So fuck them, because what they decided was that it was more important to force federal employees who could telework not to than it is to save the taxpayers' money. Uh, so-called fiscally conservative Republicans. Fuck you. Let's move on. Uh, so, at the beginning of 1959, these people with ties to Batista just left the islands in droves. We're in pre-embargo times at this point. There was a U.S. Uh, embassy in Havana, a consulate in Santiago. They're like, not... yeah, they're, they're like, we're good. Like, we can... We can... <coughs> get out of this we'll be yes. okay it was very easy to get a visa head out of the country head to the states by mid 1959 castro had started instituting some of his more socialist policies for example he nationalized the school system he began redistributing property from the wealthy and banned social clubs that were exclusionary based on race. In other words, Castro did what we still can't fucking do here in the United States, get rid of fucking racist clubs. For example, uh, may I uh, may I exhibit A, the Proud Boys, exhibit B, the KKK. I would... I would I put A as the exactly, KKK. Yeah. Proud Boys B are, the Proud are new. Boys. Yes, they haven't lynched anybody They're that all we know of. fucking chicken shit motherfuckers. That's mm-hmm. what they are. Now, this could be getting into super touchy territory. So, of course, I don't want to lump everyone who left Cuba during this time as having had the same motivations. Obviously, for every individual or every family, there could be plenty of different reasons for emigrating. But certainly, for some, the motivation was less than charitable. For example, if you were wealthy, you may not like the idea of property redistribution. If you were not wealthy, you may be okay with it (laughs) and want to stay. Or let's say you were a racist piece of shit and your little supremacist club got shut down. You may also want to leave, right? So like I said, I'm not saying that everyone who left during this time were were horrible people, but some were. (laughs) Frankly, some really, really were. Um, So yeah, it's pretty easy, an easy sell. Uh, oh, sorry, I skipped a... All right, like, uh, this was not everyone's motivation, but Castro was very keen to paint it that way. There's one thing Castro knew, it was propaganda, right? Of course. So he was like, ah, look at these people. These are all the dregs. Like, the, 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 um, people, the... Uh, proletariat, right? Or no, the bourgeoisie. Sorry, yeah. got it mixed up. Yeah. This is all the bourgeoisie leaving, right? I would love it, like, one day, like, just thinking about this, like, of all the people I think I hate in America the most, uh huh. my favorite person to hate nowadays, and probably for a while, has been Trump Jr., uh-huh. Don Jr. Donnie boy? I would love it if he got a note in the mail one day being like, hey, we're taking over, like, right? 
uh, nine tenths of your property because you're just a coattail fucking piece yep. of shit that has never earned anything. You're a parasite. Yeah, you're literally a dragon society. Yep. Mm-hmm. We're gonna give you a place to stay because we're not cruel. You know, because we have, believe in basic human right, rights. You'll have running water and electricity and food know, security. You know, like a microwave, housing. like all rich people do. They have microwaves. <laughs> but we're gonna give the rest of your shit and your fancy clothes to other people that need it because they deserve it more than you. And fuck off. Yeah, be great. So it's a pretty easy sell if you enact integration policies and people leave to point out, hey, that's some pretty convenient timing now, isn't it? And Castro did, and he especially pointed that out to the Afro-Cuban population of Cuba. In other words, we're trying to integrate people of African descent, in other words, black people and white people within Cuba, and these people are fleeing... Um, we probably want them out of the country anyway, right? Because these are the racists. That's what he was... Like I said, that wasn't everybody, but mm-hmm. Castro was A-OK painting everybody with a pretty broad brush, so... Um, and then Afro-Cuban people were highly encouraged to stay, right? Like, hey, the racist motherfuckers are leaving. This is, Things are going to get better here, so, you know, hang around. So as a result, this first wave of like non-Batista-related emigration was quite homogenous. Most of the people who left were wealthy or at least like solidly middle class or upper class. Most were white and most were Catholic. This is a very specific group of people. Um, And these people didn't necessarily all think that they were leaving Cuba for good. They had very good reason to figure the U.S. is going to overthrow this guy. They're going to overthrow Castro. <laughs> They're certainly going to try. Exactly. <laughs> we know that for sure. Yes, we talked about that last episode. <laughs> yeah. The the um, they may assassination never, efforts. They, they and... may never succeed, but at least they'll try. Yeah. Over and over and yes. over and over yes. and over and, and over fail again. And fail and fail yes. and fail and fail until the man dies from old age. You know, they even they even they literally even thought like like. I want some outside-the-box thinking. They did that. They're like, Chicago mob. Yes. Here's the contract. They gave him, like, they literally gave him, like, a matchbook. Uh-huh, like, right? Here's the, and they were like, Castro, they're like, mm, no, fuck yeah. that. <laughs> More concerned about, like, you know, here. Yeah, we, we don't really, we're not feeling it, sorry. <laughs> yeah, we're, not, we're not a fucking army. <laughs> also, like, at least for, at least in the Batista days, the mob... Cuba was mobbed up too. So oh, yes, it was. Yeah, that was yeah. that was the destination before it got before it got yep. shut mm-hmm. down, and then Vegas became the destination. Mm-hmm. Now, at this time, the U.S. was okay with this wave of immigration, right? The U.S. was so anti-Castro, it totally was to the state's benefit to say to help people yeah, coming into in. these states and and help them succeed. Because then it could be a C. Look how much better capitalism is as a system. These people are flourishing under our system when they were languishing under Marxist-Leninist communism, you know. Are, are, uh, are you going to tell me that we were we exploited them instead? Mm-hmm. No. It's what we do best. I, I, exploitation. I don't believe it. <laughs> of course, it did not hurt that the bulk of people arriving... We're okay financially. Oh, and more importantly, white. This is pre-Civil Rights Act. 
This is still very much... Or considered white? Or or white? Well... Okay. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. So, so there is... Uh, oh, and this is... Oh, I know, that, I know no, that's no, no. a deep question. No, no, but... no. This is a European white... European descent Caucasian person, white person, trying to explain something that's much more nuanced and much more for um, people of color, black and indigenous people to describe. It is my understanding that there's ethnicity and then there's race, like color, Mm -hmm. right? And that even within ethnic groups, for example, Cuban people or uh, Latino or Latinx people, there is colorism. There are people of different descents with different shades of skin. And therefore, there can be, you know, there are black Cuban people white Cuban people, maybe brown Cuban, you know, like, sure. it, I'm not explaining it well, but when I say they were white, what I mean is literally they had okay. like non-black skin. Okay. They, they were, they were, um, th- yes, they were Cuban and Latino, but they, they had white skin. So like, like kind of like a Desi Arnaz a little bit. Yes. Desi yeah. Arnaz was a, yeah. a white Cuban, Cuban yeah. man. Uh huh. Versus there were plenty of people. Amazing that he was on TV in the fucking 1950s. If you listen to it's, this, it makes it's it, fucking, it's like, pretty progressive. Yes. Isn't it? It's wild. It's really, really wild. But, um, uh, and he was from a rich family too. I don't doubt he that. Absolutely yeah. was. Um, a very privileged family. But the idea is there are also plenty of, were and are plenty of Cubans who are black or dark skinned. And <clears throat> that's not who was largely arriving oh, no. at this point. No, the ones that were black or dark skinned, we'd see 30 years later in Major League Baseball. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm, no, I know what you mean. I'm joking but, and not joking about but that. But that's when I say that they were white. I don't mean they were not Hispanic, sure. Latino, however I, they I know, choose to that's, identify. That's just why white skin. That's white why skin. I ask, like yeah. considered mm-hmm. or yeah, exactly. Actual. So interestingly, because a lot of the people who left Cuba in this first wave, they're the wealthy, they're the well-educated, they're the professionals, right? It kind of left a hole in the social fabric of Cuba. The professionals, the educated, the engineers, the doctors, the lawyers were well. I mean, a, a mass leaving. exodus of such a small population to begin with. I mean, you got to think 120, yeah. you know, well, this is before Mario. Mario was 125,000, but even before mm-hmm. that, you know, oh, if, yeah, you're, if your popu- population is only several million and tens of thousands of people yeah, leave. Yeah, I did go into what the actual, okay. uh, I, I did not look up what the actual um, population of Cuba was, but you're, but you're right. But this was an issue that Cuba actually responded to by, so it had nationalized the school system and began improving it so that it could educate children and educate people to replace the human capital loss, the professionals and the, the educated people. It's like, okay, if we're losing a bunch of people who are educated, we need to educate people. And that's that's kind of what they did. The U.S. squeeze on Cuba continued to encourage immigration from the country. So when trade started getting cut off and eventually diplomatic ties were cut by early 1961, the U.S. was more than happy to grant visas to Cubans arriving in the U.S., then allowing them to gain refugee status. So that's rich if you think about the logic. The United States contributed to a difficult situation in Cuba, resulting in people leaving Cuba for the United States. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> 
Central America, anybody? <clears throat> so, in my opinion, there's a bit of human capital stealing involved in this situation. For sure. Yeah. So, once the U.S. failed massively at the Bay of Pigs, which we talked about last week, and proved incapable of overthrowing Castro, which time would bear out, they were literally incapable forever. <laughs> they, they did not. It never happened exactly. It became clear to many who had either already left or were planning to leave Cuba that Castro's reign may not be as temporary <laughs> as they initially thought and that they may be making a more permanent home in the United States. Castro launched his own anti-emigration campaign. He dubbed those who left the island as husanos or worms. Mm. He was none too happy with anyone leaving and was very quick to propagandize and paint them as like dregs and bottom feeders and and such regardless at, later on regardless of their economic situation mm. so of if they were or not exactly so beginning in 1960 the tone of emigration from cuba started to change a little bit it turned into less of a narrative about people leaving the country because they didn't like how the political tide was turning to people needing to leave the country because of possible negative consequences, or at least in their minds, needing to. This was the the beginning of the idea of flights or specific operations to move people from Cuba to the United States, right? This is like the refugee part of it, mm -hmm. political refugee. The first large-scale flight is the best name we will hear in this entire story. Operacion Pedro Pan. Or Operation Peter Pan. Peter Pan. Pedro Pan. <laughs> Pedro Pan. Pedro Pan. I like Pedro better. Yeah. Pedro Pan. Uh, so as Cubans... So, trigger warning for call, uh, calling to mind many parallels between Cuba back then and the United States now. Um, as Cuban schools were nationalized, including parochial schools, including religious schools, and some parents became quite unsettled, thanks, at least in part, to a really effective smear campaign by the United States government and media. To be clear, the propaganda ran both ways here. Mainstream outlets, including the Miami Herald and Time magazine, propagated the speculation, Castro's going to revoke all parental rights. All children, because this is a communist regime, all children are going to become wards of the state. Parents will have no rights over the education of their children. They are all going to become indoctrinated as communists in these nationalized schools. That was the narrative, right? Then naturally, the, that would be the worst thing in the world. What's the worst thing to an American that you could do to a child? Make him a communist. <laughs> <laughs> um... So some parents became really desperate to save their child from a life of becoming a communist. So the U.S. State Department and the Catholic Welfare Bureau joined up. Oh, that's, oh, God, that's right. Catholics. My God. <laughs> yes. Oh, the Catholics. To give them an out. To bring these kids to the United States. Between December 1960 and October 1962, Pedro Pan brought approximately 14,000 unaccompanied minors 
between the ages of 6 and 18 to the United States, away from their parents in Cuba, in what remains the largest recorded exodus of unaccompanied minors in the Western Hemisphere. In other words, these are children mm-hmm. with no parents with them as they travel. Crossing the ocean. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, this is a picture of where these kids landed, ended up, you know, okay. in, yep. the, in the end. You can see they're kind of scattered all over, although we'll talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit more. That's one of the Pan Am flights. Jeez. For the kids. Um, here are some of the kids. They look like little adults because it's the 60s. <laughs> yeah, they do. And with <laughs> yeah. the priests. Pedro Pan. Pedro Pan. So okay. I do feel it's important to point out here that uh, the parents thought they were doing right by their kids, right? I'm not trying to say that these parents were somehow being neglectful. In fact, if anything, they were overcorrecting. The other way, right? They were kind of over-caring. They were a little too paranoid as it turned out. Um, So they were really susceptible to fear-mongering. I actually think the biggest bad guy in this story is the U.S. for propagating the idea that this was going to happen. Uh, For the record, it never did. Yes, compulsory military service. There's other stuff. But in terms of, like, taking away parental rights... At least in everything I saw, that didn't actually happen. So, um, and now it is true that there were not private schools anymore. It was all nationalized. So parents' school choice, which is a big thing here in the States right now, we are unfortunately going way too far the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, this was just in the other direction. Anyway, and I wrote here, it's the same old story, same old song and dance my friend yes so about half of the kids who arrived in the u.s through pedro pan were met by relatives or family friends and those people took custody of them took care of them but the rest were put in the care of the catholic welfare bureau run by a priest named brian walsh now i am not going to put any accusations whatsoever because i know nothing about father walsh And there was no information to indicate that he was anything but a good guy. Okay? So I am not smearing Father Walsh. However, if you look at it with the lens of what we know now, of what the Catholic Church does for priests. Yeah. The idea of 7,000 children essentially in the custody of the Catholic Church. The idea of seven children. Yeah. In the custody of the Catholic Church is Mm -hmm. disturbing. All I can say is that should not happen now. If this ever no. came up now, it would be an instant, like, um, did anyone see Spotlight? Thanks very much. No, if it came up now, it would be propagandized to be like, no, we're not, nobody would even know. do other bullshit, yeah. yeah. Anyway, the kids who were under the Welfare Bureau's care were homed in either temporary shelters or foster homes, many in Miami, but also across the United States, once Florida was basically, like, full up. This was all funded by the United States government. The kids were, like, there was money for the kids' care once they reached the U.S. So it wasn't necessarily wealthy parents who were sending their kids. You know, it could Mm -hmm. also include, like, working class parents. So you can also understand the temptation to provide an opportunity for your kid that otherwise you wouldn't have the chance to do, right? If you couldn't afford to leave but wanted to, Mm -hmm. at least you could get your kid out. 
And to the Welfare Bureau's credit, they kept the operation pretty well under wraps in terms of publicity. They would not let it be openly advertised in the United States. They did not let... um, they did not use like feel good propaganda, pick kids pictures, shit like that. They they didn't, and that's good, you know. The cost to for each kid to the families themselves was twenty five dollars, or about two hundred fifty dollars today, for the flight. That covered the cost of the flight. No children were adopted out because that literally would have been antithetical to the whole we're preserving parental rights right. thing. <laughs> Correct. Um, but apparently given the time period, some parents were also able to photocopy authentic visas, which were accepted by officials. So it's possible more kids got out than originally intended. This is a pre 9-11 folks. Yeah. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> like, like as long as you had some sort of wait, idea. Wait, 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 like, wait. Like, yeah, that works. It's 40 years before 9 Yeah. Um, of course, uh, as well intentioned as the parents and even the Catholic Welfare Bureau may have been by sending these kids to the States, any sudden separation from a parent, and some of these were really like literally overnight decisions, or at least that the kids knew of, it will like basically with certainty and very naturally cause abandonment issues for a kid. Try explaining to a six-year-old, we're doing this for your... No. All they're going to know yeah, yeah. is... I is, feel abandoned. Yes, exactly. One of the Pedro Pan kids, uh, Carlos Ire, who would go on to become a professor at Yale and an award-winning author, wrote, quote... Not having your parents there, you feel a sense of betrayal, that you're betraying your parents if you're too happy. Even after my mom came, even at the best moments, I was, it was always this feeling that, gee, you know, my dad's not here. You feel this sense that you should never or can never really be happy, hmm. end quote. Yeah. It's a lot of complicated feelings for yeah. kids to be feeling, right? Most of the kids were reunited with their parents within about a year or so, but for some it took several years, and for a large number of the kids, a, a lot of the kids were actually older teenage boys. So they just grew up, and then they were independent because they were adults. Um, and, and that happened before they ever saw their parents again. The Pedro Pan children were also re- very strictly required to assimilate. They had to attend Catholic school. Um, and I assume that's its own trauma. <laughs> yeah. Just on its own, yes. Yeah. Uh, they were required to learn English and prohibited from speaking Spanish. Not to mention they were also dropped into 1961 America, which, yeah, maybe not the least racist or kind place ever, you know? Though apparently not the majority, thankfully. Some of the Pedro Pan kids did also experience emotional and or physical abuse. I mean, they were put in homes. Sure. It happened for some of them. And as with any other cohort of children, they grew up to do all sorts of things, including become mayors of city. One of the mayors of Denver was a Pedro Pan kid. University professors, authors who wrote about their their time their parents sent them alone to the U.S., like Carlos Ire. Former U.S. Senator from Florida and Republican National Committee Chair Mel Martinez Mm. is a Pedro Pan child, which brings up a really interesting point. According according to Carlos Aire, many of the Pedro Pan kids 
grew up to be very, very anti-Castro because very understandably, they see him as the cause of this traumatic childhood experience of being torn away from their parents. It's hard enough to see the nuance in any given situation, let alone one that you were traumatized by, right? Exactly. So, like, yeah. you can't, you can't, you can't dig blame on these. Them for no, that way. no, you cannot. You, it, it's it makes sense. Um, according to a Pew Research study in 2020, 58 percent of Cuban Americans are either affiliated with or identify with the Republican Party. They're majority Republican which and is, conservative. Which is why it's the one group of immigrants that they don't shit on. Right? It is. Mm-hmm. That's the one group of immigrants And there's a long champion. history of that. Yes. yes, exactly. Everyone else, you know, fuck off. And that's, but these guys vote for us, so they're this okay. Is a, this is given a little more context when you look at Hispanic-Latinx Hispanic voters who are not Cuban. The same study found... 65% of those people are Democrat or identify as Democrats. Yeah, so uh, yeah. Latino people in general skew Democrat. Mm-hmm. Cuban Americans are the exact opposite. A lot of it has to do with religion, too. Well, there is also Catholicism, but Kennedy was a Democrat mm-hmm. and he was Catholic. Yeah, well, so is our current president. But like the the conservative, the conservative ideology that comes with being religious, I think Cuban Americans are more attracted to the Republican Party for that reason. Well, and Cuban Americans at this point were <clears throat> highly indoctrinated to be pro-US and anti-Cuba. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um Cuban Americans are very influential in American politics when it comes to Latino voters. 58% of Cubans voted Cuban Americans voted in the 2016 elections, the highest of all Hispanic voters mm. and did vote majority of Trump. The reason Cuban Americans lean conservative is obviously a hell of a lot more multifaceted than just, oh, they don't like Castro. For sure. Or just religion, like I said. Right. But certainly those are parts of those facets, Mm -hmm. right? They play a role. They do play a role. So the end of Operation Pedro Pan coincided, uncoincidentally, with a little thing called the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we also discussed last week. So Cuba was now officially cut off from the United States, and emigration took yet another turn, ushering in another new era, that of the freedom flight. So now, oh, hey, we're inching closer to the actual topic next week. (laughs) So the time... next week's episode. Yes, because there's so much more. So the time immediately after the missile crisis was very dicey for those wanting to leave Cuba. Kennedy was immediately... Kennedy sent a contingent to try and overthrow Castro. So when that failed, he's like, shit, mm. what if they try to do the same thing? Uh. <laughs> um, so he, the Coast Guard set up a sort of like a border, a patrol line, an, an unofficial sure. border uh, within the waters near Cuba to monitor for any potential what they called insurgents uh, trying to boat to the United States to invade the country, which, yeah, I'm sure a, a raft they're, they're, of five yes. people would with, really with, cause with it, problems. Without shoes. Wow. <laughs> they're invading us. <clears throat> like, I can only imagine the shocked responses of, they're invading us, they're mm-hmm. invading us, they don't have shoes. <coughs> yep. And or, or guns. And this obviously made it really difficult for anyone who was not trying to invade the U.S., but just to emigrate. And these were just the people brave enough to try leaving. Not only was the U.S. like looking for insurgents, sure. 
Cuba was very specifically closing its borders to not let anyone leave. And this mm. is where it starts getting dictatorial, right? Yes. This is where Castro starts to, in in the broader sense of this story, starts to turn well, it's a, a lot more dictator than that, socialist leader. It's that scene from A, a Bronx Tale where uh, Chaz Palminteri, mm-hmm. who plays the main mobster in that movie, mm-hmm. a bunch of bikers go into his bar and start causing a bit of a ruckus, and then they're like, they're like, no, we're, we were just trying to be cool, and he's like, all right, and he's like, you, you can hang out, give him some drinks, and then they act like dicks again. He goes and shuts and locks the door behind him, and he goes, no, you just can't leave. <laughs> yeah. And we all know what that meant. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> meant they were getting their asses kicked. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, I mean, that is... See, this is the... This is the parable, right? Mm. It's like, he does all these things which are viewed as a good thing. Right. Nationalizing uh, education, that, that could be viewed one way or the other. The way we do it here is statewide. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're so, also much bigger, so that correct. makes sense. You yeah. know, but... Uh, this like the now you just can't leave now you just can't leave. this is where the the gangster starts coming mm-hmm. out right and and yes and but that's, I, but that's where the nuance starts to well now we need to look at the dark side too well right and and also peering into that dark side a little bit mm-hmm. i can see a little bit of well he wasn't really given much of an option was he that's like, the other like, thing. Like we're not getting any, we're not getting any economic support from the United States, which means we're not getting ec- any economic support from the world. Mm-hmm. We're yeah, cut off from the from world. the Western world, yes. from the non-Soviet supporting world. And we've got a shaky relationship with the Eastern European world because they don't necessarily want to touch us either because of the Western world. And you're in an all hands on deck situation. Like we need to figure out how to manufacture yeah. things and make things. And the more people leave, the less chance we have of so, all right, fuck. The, that's the problem, is that none of this happened in a vacuum. Hell no. And none of this happened in... And it's in... way more nuanced than we're even getting into. Exactly. Yeah. And none of this happened with, yeah, but what if the U- U.S. just hadn't fucked with things? Well, I mean, that's... A, we that's, don't know. That's, that's certainly a part of it. And yeah. if it hadn't been us, maybe it would have been somebody else. I mean, who, who that's knows? True. That's true. It would have been true. France or England or... Spain? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Um, but anyway... Um, so at this point, like post Cuban Missile Crisis, like in the the couple years right after, basically anyone trying to leave for the U.S. was shit out of luck. You know? Yeah, it's, it's uh, just this, this was not. It's it's uh here's your choice. You're going to risk your life doing it. Yes, yes, very very much so. And you may or may not get there. And if you don't get there, mm-hmm. there's probably going to be no trace of you. And if you do get there, you're going to be subject to other things when you get to the United States. So, well, it's fucking. And then here's where we start seeing no, seeing more of some of the shit that Castro started to pull. And and these are like these are clear like chess moves he's trying to make. In September of 1965, Castro just basically stunned everyone by making a very unexpected announcement. He's like, "Okay. You want to leave? Go ahead. If you've got relatives in the United States, I'll tell you what. I am opening the po- the port of Camarioca. Go. You got family, you go. And he just literally announced it like that. Like, we're opening it, go ahead. And it's, um, Camarioca is like on the north shore of Cuba, a little east of Havana, basically directly due south of Florida. Probably the main port to get out. 
Yeah, right? Um, And he's like, all you need is for someone from the States to request you. you. Like say, hey, that's my mother, my whatever, whatever relative, and you can go. One caveat. If you're a boy or a man between the ages of 14 and 27, you're stuck. Sorry. Thank you very much. Because we need you for military service. There was that. (laughs) So thousands of people suddenly had a window that they didn't know how long it would be open. Because he just did it, you know, instantly so it could close again. Plus, you've got to get past that U.S. naval blockade. Well, no. Have fun with that. No, 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 no. Does not exist? We're going to talk about this in just a second. So... Thousands of people suddenly allowed to leave the country. Chaos. Sure. Right? Thousands of boats, many of which not particularly seaworthy, started launching from both Florida and Cuba to transport those eligible to leave the island. The U.S. Coast Guard instantly had its hands full. Um, and to, <coughs> to the Coast Guard's credit, they actually helped people. They, they were not it. stopping Correct. this immigration. They were trying sure. to help people. But they had their, they were overwhelmed of instantly. Course. Of course. Thousands of people were hitting the high sea to make it to Florida. And the weather was horrific. It was just terrible weather. Which I'm guessing is was not um, an accident on Castro's part. Probably. I mean, to, who knows? Probably not. To say, yeah. sure, you want to leave? Um, let me let me plan. When am I going to say this? Oh, it's calling for thunderstorms in the Gulf. Of... Right now, you can leave Go right now. <laughs> um, so it's estimated around two hundred thousand people were wanting to or trying to leave. That's a lot. In the Camarioca boat lift, this is a boat lift, by the way. This mm-hmm. is the definition of a boat lift. Only between three thousand and five thousand people actually made it. Before the whole thing shut down because of weather. Damn. Like, the Coast Guard literally had to, like, rescue people. Sure. It was, it was not good. And it's it's also not known how many people died trying. Some for sure did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, there's no way that nobody made that no, out exactly. unscathed. So here are some <laughs> pictures of some of the shit that was going down with the Camarillo boat lift. Yeah. It's just, it's just a fucking mad dash. Mm-hmm. Like, it really is. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of the scene in um, uh, Spielberg's War of the Worlds, where they're trying uh-huh. to get on the ferry. Right, to yeah. Go to, and then all of a sudden, and then it's just a mad dash to get on whatever boat you can get on. Mm-hmm. It's probably what that was like. Yep. Without the robots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> yes. <laughs> what the boat lift did not do was forced the United States... Oh, sorry. Other way. What the boat lift did do was force the U.S.'s hand in figure figuring out a way to avoid... Avoid. I don't know why I said that. Avoid a major humanitarian crisis when sure. it came to the people of Cuba wanting to emigrate. So the for the first time in several years, the U.S. and Cuba began diplomatic negotiations to address this issue, culminating in a... Memorandum of Understanding, and that is, if you work for the federal government, there's a lot of Memoranda of Understanding, (laughs) that Cuba would let people leave and the United States would let them arrive with priority given to anyone emigrating who already had family within the United States. And this has also led to new legislation being passed 
but it is worth explaining a little bit of background on that. So in 1924, the United States passed the disgustingly racist Johnson-Reed Act, or an act to the number of immigrants allowed entry into the United States and for other purposes. In short, this legislation halted immigration altogether to the U.S., specifically from Asia. This is like a massively anti-Asian policy. And put quota limits on emigration from other countries outside of the Western Hemisphere. In other words, um, maybe looking for a little bit of, uh, can we stop black and brown people from getting over here? So, um, of course, as we all know, The 1960s ushered in big changes in the United States, especially as it pertained to civil rights, and that culminated in the groundbreaking Civil Rights Act of 1964. The next year, 65, the Hart-Seller Act passed, which eliminated national origin, race, and ancestry as a basis for immigration. So they're saying you cannot discriminate on that basis anymore, and instituted a seven-tiered preference system for immigrants based on family ties and work skills. Is this still discriminatory? Why, yes. Yes, it is still very much discriminatory. It's a little better, though. But it did change how immigration worked. For one thing, President Lyndon Johnson gave a speech surrounding the act's passing that specifically called out the Cuban people. He said, quote, I declare this afternoon to the people of Cuba that those who seek refuge here in America We'll find it. End quote. You will never hear a fucking president <laughs> say anything close to that today. Mm-hmm. I mean, man, I mean, the more I've learned about LBJ, he had his fucking problems. Let's, let's be oh, honest. Oh, major fucking problems. <laughs> Every president does. But he was like a, I'm going to do this, we're going to get this done type of guy, which is, we, we need a person like that. I don't care what fucking form they come in. Right. Yeah. Black woman, Indian male, who I don't care. Like just not a white man, because we can't trust those fuckers. Sorry. Just give me somebody with a fucking set of balls that wants to lay it out. Like that's mm-hmm. that's all I'm asking for. Mm-hmm. That's all most of us are asking for. Right. So Cuba and the US specifically cooperated for that exact purpose by instituting the Freedom Flights, or Los Fueros de la Libertad, which were literally I did not know. I cannot believe I didn't know about this. But I didn't go to public school in Miami, so of course I didn't learn, like, my local history, you, you, you as I should have. You didn't get that CRT. <laughs> Which I should have. We all should. <laughs> um, so the, these Freedom Flights were literally regularly scheduled flights twice a day from Cuba to Miami, specifically to carry sure. people immigrating. So here is... Some pictures surrounding that. These are people leaving on the Freedom Flights. That is a lot of people. It's a, it's a big ass plane, too. Yes. Uh huh. Like Those are Pan Am flights, right? Prepared to take lots and lots of people. Uh huh. And we'll talk about how many. But to facilitate this, facilitate this influx of Cuban immigrants, the Cuban Adjustment Act was passed in 1966. This allowed any Cuban citizen arriving to the U.S once processed through the immigration system, to be considered a permanent resident after living in the States for one year. Okay, so I mean... But it kicked off a lot of contention about the preferential status mm, of Cuban immigrants received from the U.S. that immigrants from other countries 
especially those in the Caribbean, Mm. were not getting. The immigrants also experienced plenty of discrimination stateside, especially due to the influx of Spanish-speaking residents, an issue that is still a problem today. I was going to say that's never ended. Speak English. Fuck you. Yeah. So the freedom flights would eventually bring an estimated 260,000 people from Cuba to the United States between 1965 and 1973. Eight years, 260,000 people. Despite Cuba's cooperation with the flights, the Castro regime did not look kindly upon anyone trying to leave. Called them worms. Um, harassed them. Oh, they were of these people were very subject to harassment. Those on there was a waiting list. Sometimes people could wait a couple of years sure. before getting on one of the flights. I mean, it lasted for eight years. Mm-hmm. So they often lost their jobs for being mm-hmm. enemies of the state. Yeah, right. So it's that's a harsh consequence. It's Lose the, your job for a couple of years. It's the dictatorship. Coming exactly. Out. Eventually, Castro started cracking down on the program altogether. He suspended it for much of 72, 1972, and on April 6, 1973, the last freedom flight left Cuba for the United States. Now, very interestingly, I've learned so much about Miami that I didn't know. <laughs> These immigrants would, immigrants would be processed at the Freedom Tower in downtown Miami. I have seen that fucking tower a thousand times. I never knew you what it know, was. You didn't know that. <laughs> no. Why is it called the Freedom Tower? It, it it was called the Ellis Island of the South. Sure. It it it's that. And historic... you know what? And you know what? We need another one. We need several right? of them. All I knew it as was a, a stop on the Metro Rail. <laughs> but this is the Freedom Tower. Let me see. At the top. Okay. And people, you know, lining up. Yeah. And then this is like the waiting room. Okay. People waiting for it to get processed. Wow. So, with lockdowns back in place, immigrations reverted for the next several years to the bad old days of desperate refugees risking the dangerous trip between Cuba and the States, leaving the situation ripe for history repeating itself with yet another boat lift. Mm -hmm. This time, much, much larger. And that, my friends, was part Two or dose. <laughs> Part dose. Of the Mariel boat lifts. There's just yeah. so much shit to talk about with this. I understand why it's going three uh, episodes now. Well, I kind of. I kind of. talking about the Mariel boat lift. I kind of did before, but yeah. But it's. We it's just required found out, to we, know all this. We just found out there were many Mariel boat lifts before the Mariel boat lift. Well, there, there was at least the one. Yeah. Uh, the Camarioca one. But even the flights, like you consider that. Well, those are that, flights. Those are not right. boat lifts. Understandably, but, but a mass emigration from yes, the island. Yes, yes. The problem is there's a very different thing between flying people over and boating oh, people over. Oh, for fucking hell yeah. That's why Freedom Flights were a lot yeah, more 90, organized 90 miles than boat a, lifts. 90 miles on a plane takes, what, like 20 minutes? Oh, it's, it's at, nothing. At best. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or at worst, rather. But uh, but getting across in a boat, especially one that may not be exactly a luxury yeah. cruise liner. You could die. Yes. Much more easily than you could in a plane for that 90 miles. Yeah. yeah. And so. considering, think about it, the last time for the Camarilca boat lift, Castro was just like, fine, take him. So what's to stop him from suddenly saying that again and us not being ready for it? Yeah. Hint, hint. Yeah. And this would have been when Jimmy Carter was still president. Oh, yes. Mr. Carter, President Carter, 
Mr. Qatar plays a lot a large role. Mm-hmm. Poor fucking Jimmy Carter. I swear, every diplomatic problem. And and the dude tried. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about poor Jimmy Carter. I, I don't think, I mean, historically speaking, I don't think he was necessarily ready to be president. And like his, you know. But I, I would, he tried, though, he tried. to be diplomatic in a lot of ways. He tried. But it, and failed. But <laughs> his, uh, his style of diplomacy being like human interest, like that doesn't play on the fucking... Like, you're concerned about human beings? What's wrong yeah. with you? Like, that's probably how he got looked he at. He's too kind to be president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're like, look at this guy. He's he's worried about people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's probably what they thought of him. Yeah. It, people in his own administration probably thought that. Yeah. You know? But all I know is that he probably did think that because he still builds houses for homeless people to this day. And he's like 175. Yes. Yes, so, correct. Well, and he worked I've never, in diplomacy after yeah, his I've never done that once. <laughs> <laughs> and I sure as fuck won't be doing it in my 90s. <laughs> so, yeah, but man, this... This is a whole you, can you, of worms. <laughs> it is. I mean, it is. And it crosses so many different it other... Does. It does. This crosses... This has an effect on the Vietnam War. This has an effect on... Uh, trade with central uh i mean it's it's I'm not, all over the place i don't know what because i'm not done with the script for part three but all i know is it puts into perspective a lot of more modern issues like wet foot dry foot and eliana yeah. fucking gonzalez it's, it's because you've had a national administrations federal government for the most part with this issue kicking the fucking can down the road for 40 50 fucking years were kicking the can down the road after it completely fucked everything up. Yeah. And obviously yeah. it's going to cost money, like it's not going to be cheap, but if I mean, to me one way you solve this immigration crisis, which is not a crisis, it's just mismanagement. Exactly. Is what, exactly what it is. Uh you repeat you you put five Ellis Islands on the southern border. You know, that anyway you well you have a you have a way to process people and deal with them at the point of entry in, instead of you know my my thought was uh, i think a good immigration model would be i think you'd have to first and foremost just to even make it happen say first off if you're convicted and i don't think this should necessarily be the case but if you're convicted of a crime or say a high crime or something in another country, first of all, you cannot come in. Period. Or, story. Or you're gonna have to wait in this room. Well, like, with these so, other whatever. guys, it will process you differently. And, but otherwise, yes, come on in. You've got two options. You've got the "I'm here temporarily" path, like a student or something. You know all the usual stuff. Or you've got the "I want to become a citizen" path. Mm-hmm. The "I want to become a citizen" path. You're put in the classes. You know, for the test that you need to take and everything, you are um, given the authorization to work, the whole thing. It's basically like, okay, you start setting yourself up here. Mm-hmm. Get it. We'll help you get a job, Get you know, start working, establish yourself. And I mean, I don't see why, sure, become an, a, a citizen within a year. Why the fuck not? Just first, make first it of, easy. First of all, it would help the federal government in terms of taxes. Mm-hmm. Because like right away it's like okay yes what get gonna... people on the grid yeah absolutely a hundred percent yeah yes except um oh yeah a lot of commerce depends on completely exploiting people 
who uh, are undocumented. So, and by a lot mm. of com- commerce, we mean all of it. <laughs> I mean, really. But I mean, that's and who, I mean, who knows? There's no perfect. There, there would be problems with that. There's no perfect solution. There's going to be problems with everything. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, what is we the best... can't aim for perfect. Right. right. We what have is to the aim best for possible... better. What is what's... the best possible outcome? Or just even start with what's better. Right. What improve? Right. That's where it starts. Start by improving. Yeah. Every time you're improving. Because that's the that's the big thing with the gun lobby is like, oh, you're not going to be able to stop all the shootings. Like nobody, no. nobody's. Declaring that no. we're going to stop all the shootings. Uh uh-uh. uh. But if we just stopped 5,000, guess what? That's a lot! That would only mean 35,000 people are dead. Right? Instead of 40,000. Uh huh. It's like. That's great! That's, that's an improvement! Uh, right! It's like. <laughs> I mean, Jesus exactly. Christ. It's. Yeah, mm-hmm. for fuck's sake. Whatever. Well, we just solved all the world's problems. There we go. At the end. Make us dual presidents. We'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll all be great. <laughs> First thing for every red state, if I were president or like oh, co-president, like I would send them all edibles, all of them. <laughs> you guys need to chill, chill the, the fuck just out. Fucking relax. <laughs> yeah. Or shrooms to like change their mind, expand. Well, their that's mind that's or that's going. Yeah, that's oh, going. That's going, going to too a, much. Okay. Got to start with the. There will come. There will be a coupon with the edibles that says now if you want to try shrooms. But but it, <laughs> they have to be like on a accompanied and on a good trip and no no yeah. they, they just you just you, you rent uh a... no the edibles i mean they oh, can't yeah. have a bad trip you, you have to protect them from a bad trip no i know but you were you were going right to like psilocybin you were going right to the mushrooms you're like no uh, sorry that's what i mean they can't have a they <laughs> no, can't have a bad trip that's what on I'm those trips i'm saying we start with the edibles okay you don't start we'll with work shrooms. our way yeah no no kids like the like marijuana is the gateway drug no kid's first ever drug was marijuana. It just wasn't. It was booze. It was cigarettes or alcohol. It was mm-hmm. one of the two. Usually both, like mm-hmm. in my case. <laughs> Simultaneously. Yeah, and then I, you know, worked my way up and made it to the top. And, and the cocaine. Yeah, I didn't, like, I just rubbed my nose. <laughs> <laughs> and cocaine appeared. <sighs> anyway. Yes. That was part two of the Mario Boat Lifts. Los Immigrantes. Los Inmercantes. See? This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week.